with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, a little after 2 o'clock here in the Upper Midwest, and I am now joined uh, once again uh, by Seth Kotlar, who's professor of history at Willamette University. He's the author of Tom Paine's America, and he has been um, really helpful to all of us in understanding the uh, uh, radical right takeover of the Republican Party. Uh, he has a wonderful Substack account called Rightlandia, uh, and he's been recently diving into the archives of somebody most of you haven't heard of, unless you heard him, he, uh, heard Seth here before talking about Walter Huss, but it's wild reading. Anyway, Professor, thank you for joining me again. Sure, great to be here. Uh, so it's this 4th of July celebrations people are getting ready for, and... Um, you know, people are, I think, looking back at history to try and justify their current points of view, um, right? And it's one of the reasons why I like talking to actual historians who tend to look at history in a slightly different way. Um, can, can you t- just talk a little bit about how far today's Republican Party has moved, even from the Republican Party that nominated Mitt Romney just a decade ago. And and, and what that, you know, I'm, I'm struck by that just radicalization in such a short time, but maybe I see it incorrectly. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, one of the, the key differences is it's a question of who is setting the tone of the party. I mean, all political parties are coalitions. They are, are diverse coalitions of people. So that, you know, the, the guy that I'm studying, who you mentioned, Walter Huss, in the 1970s and 80s was a Republican, and he was way to the right of the majority of people who were in, the, who were in control of the Republican Party at the time. Um, but he was in, still in the Republican Party, so it's not as if there weren't folks on the far right back in the 1970s and 80s who were committed Republicans. Um, so that, that hasn't changed. What's changed is the kind of balance of power within that coalition, so that the, the far right elements of the coalition have become much more central and play a much larger role in setting the policy agenda and setting the kind of messaging of the party, such that I'm sure you can remember, and your listeners can remember if they're old enough, uh, back when Tom Cancredo was raving about mm-hmm. illegal immigration and uh, back in the 2000 and aughts. And the general response, my sense was, is that most people regarded him as a complete kook. You know, this kind of far-right wacko who was really out of touch, even with the Republican Party, Um now, Tom Tancredo would be, you know, kind of a moderate on immigration in the Republican Party. Um, so it's not as if there weren't voices like his in the Republican Party 20 years ago. Um, what's shifted is are the mechanisms through which the party kind of filters out, you know, who can run in primaries. It's also shifted in terms of the media messaging such that ways of thinking and, and being uh, that used to be considered outlandish and inappropriate and kind of uh, illiberal now are 
prized and are considered to be excellent. Um, and so the base picks up on that. Uh, they listen to Tucker Carlson or whatever, kind of you know, Sebastian Gorka or Steve Bannon or whoever it might be. Um, and they're kind of given encouragement to embrace these more kind of outright homophobic, outright anti-immigrant, outright kind of racist uh, kind of sentiments. And so it becomes this kind of doom loop that works through the primary process uh, in terms of who the candidates will be, will be here on the, the media. And so that's kind of where, where we're at. And I, I wish I had a sense of what the path out of that would be uh, for the political culture of the Republican Party. But um, I, I, don't, I mean, Chris Christie is I'm no huge fan of Chris Christie, but, uh, you know, his truth telling has been kind of refreshing in a, in a way. Uh, kind of surprising. Uh, yeah, and he's polling at what seven percent in the Republican primary. Oh, sure. I mean, he, he and he knows he knows he has no chance of winning. I mean, he's just he's it's like a kamikaze mission, mission that he's on. Well, know, but um, yeah, or they're all hoping that, that that Mr. Trump will be taken off the stage by the Justice Department. But I have a different question for you. I mean, I was struck that when you talked about how parties are coalitions. And in a two-party system in a giant country, those coalitions are almost required to be broad. Um, but I, but lately, the Republican Party has focused in a way that more that you're more used to in parliamentary parties in Europe, where they have enforced a point of view, and they've actually thrown people out. So they haven't aimed at it being a big coalition party. They've aimed at being a, a, a ideological party along the lines of more traditionally European, um, and certainly in this case, European right-wing parties. And that, 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 that's harder to grow back out once you start doing that. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and the advantage they have is that the ideology that they're really doubling down on and are becoming more dogmatic about is the ideology that has justified historical power and asymmetries in the United States for centuries, right? So, you know, telling white people to be mad about the 1619 project is like really low-hanging fruit. Like, telling straight people to feel resentful uh, about queer people, uh, you know, telling cis people to be really mad about trans people, um, that, that is a message that will sell to a large number of people um, because these uh, movements that have arisen to provide access, rights, equality of opportunity, et cetera, for historically marginalized groups those have become the, the target uh, for this Republican messaging machine. And so they've got the, the wind of kind of historical inequities blowing behind their back uh, that gives them uh, force and weight. Um, they also have a very kind of well-developed kind of propaganda machine, you might say, or kind of tools of, of manipulation and propaganda that they use Um to get these messages out. Um, it's a very familiar kind of formula, um, whether it be race baiting, whether it be moral panics around sexuality, et cetera. Um, you know, these have been in place for five, six generations or five, six decades. Um, so, you know, it's, whereas progressive movements are, 
are trying to kind of imagine a very different future and, and kind of push back against these historically inequitable dynamics, what the right is doing is just trying to kind of preserve and cement these historical injustices and inequities. And all you need to do is to hit someone, an individual, on one vector of their identity, um, and you've got them. So it could be, you know, that here's a person who is a person of color, uh, but who is anxious around issues about sexuality. And so they will hear that this is why the concept of woke is so uh, useful for DeSantis. This is why he's doubled down on this, is that it is this catch-all for, it could be anti-racist that he means by woke. It could be people who believe in uh, equality for LGBTQ people. Uh, it could be a whole range of things that count as woke. Um, and the people he's aiming this messaging at only need to care about one of them. Um, and they're bought in. So it could also be vaccines, right? So you could, I, I've seen this online. I've seen people who, who believe in racial justice, uh, are not homophobes at all, but are really pissed off about vaccines and think that the COVID vaccine was a bioweapon. And you got them, right? That's all you needed was that one issue. And so woke is this really pliable propaganda term um, that enables them to build this coalition where everybody in it doesn't have to share the same dissatisfactions and resentments. They just have to have one of them. Uh, and then they're in that, in that bucket. So I, um, about a year and a half ago, went on a, my own little bit of research and dug into the writings of Kevin Phillips, who oh, was, yes. uh-huh. you know, an architect of, of, Resentment. He wrote the coming, you know, Republican majority. He spent a lot of time thinking, and he said, "Look, the the party that can corral the biggest group of resentments is going to be the one that dominates forever." You know, we just got to make sure that everybody knows there's somebody they can hate, and and that was that was his contribution to making America a better place. Um, and, but the Republicans, I mean, he worked in the Nixon, you know, he worked for in, in the Nixon Justice Department for John Mitchell, and then he helped them build their, 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 I mean, it was his students that worked in every Republican campaign, you know, for generations. So you're absolutely right. It's a strategy um, to, uh, use resentment um, and it's right. powerful except that they this time they've gone into fantasy land so much and that the people they resent turn out to be so many different kinds of people that you know while you, while you may say to one group hey you know um, your example I think was um, a, a black man who's you know concerned about you know uncomfortable around gay maybe um, but in fact there's so many targets now of the right that we all should look at each other and going well like who's not in there like the group of people that they're targeting is so vast <laughs> that the pool of resentments is so big the rest of us look at each other and go well hey you're in that group I'm in that group she's in that group suddenly it's pretty it, you know we have a chance to build from the other side now together right right yeah I, it, yeah I think that's true I mean there is something 
um, I mean, there's something internally kind of incoherent and inconsistent around that Kevin Phillips approach, um, which is that, you know, if you ask a lot of Reaganite conservatives today, what did Reagan mean? Why was he successful? The first thing they will tell you is that he was optimistic and had a sunny view of the American future. And he was really positive about what America was, um, which is you know true. That was part of his rhetorical <laughs> strategy. Um, yep. uh, but simultaneously, what they were doing were, was also kind of organizing around these various discontents around sexuality, race, etc. And so it was that doubleness of this conservative political culture in the 80s and 90s um, that, you know, could go a lot of different directions. So, like, for example, I think a lot of the never-Trump conservatives in 2016 were Reaganites who really just believed this message that, like, America's a multiracial democracy, we believe in religious pluralism, and we just want to do that through smaller government and lower taxes. And then they kind of looked around in 2016 and were like, wait, whoa, whoa, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> who, are, who are all these racists and like anti-Semites and like angry, yep. resentful homophobes in my party? How did they get in here? And, you know, a lot of us who aren't in that world were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you Through the this? front door. Uh, <laughs> Think right. you were holding right. open. <laughs> right. And, but but, but I, I, I don't think they're lying. Like, like I don't, I mean, everybody has I agree with you. capacity for self-deception, right? It's a human thing. Yep. It's not, it's not yep. only conservatives who have that capacity. So I, I agree you know, with and, and so this is where I think, you know, in some ways the, the, the message, like DeSantis's, um, campaign, for example, the messaging they're putting out is so dark. It's just terrifying, right? Um, and, and part of me feels like, okay, like, go for it. Like, if that's what you think is going to get, you know, the majority of the American people on board, uh, you know, good, good luck to you. Um, and it's terrifying if indeed that does work. <laughs> We're in a really bad place, and I don't know what could have gotten us out of it anyway. Um but, uh, but but I think that's where that you know, kind of American carnage version of the Republican Party that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and so on has kind of ushered in that has now become the dominant mode within the party. It's certainly like incredibly emotionally powerful and effective in rallying people up um, to you know engage in what I call participatory anti-democracy. Right? Um, uh, but I don't know that the energies of that are really all that sustainable. I mean, ultimately, like how many people are going to give up their weekends to go harass a drag a drag queen story hour? Like there are people who are going to do it and they're going to cause damage and, and, and it's really terrible behavior on their part. Um, but like, really, you're going to build a political party around that? Like, that's, like, people like to go fishing. Like, people like to go to baseball games. People like to go for picnics. Like, you know, there's a whole lot of things that people like to do with their time, aside from picking up their AR-15 and going to harass a drag queen story hour. So, uh, if that's going to be the heart of how you define what your party is, it just strikes me that you're going to, they're going to hit a wall in terms of how many people oh. are going to be able to kind of get on board with that. 
Totally agree with you. I mean, and one of the reasons why you can go fishing, you can go to a ball game, you can go for a bike ride is because, you know what, while they're busy stirring up everybody's animosities, there have been a group of people actually trying to govern and do it well. And, and you know, things are just not all woe is me in America. It's actually, you know, we're where our economy is doing pretty well. They've, they've, they've done a good job of taking on some of the issues of inflation. People can live a pretty good life here. I mean, and you travel around the world, you're, you, once again, you come back and you go, well, you know what, things are not so bad here. So if you really want to get people to be insanely angry, you have to convince them that life here is worse than life almost everywhere else. And it's just not even, I mean, th- that's fantasy far beyond their capability. Right. Well, and, and the, 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 the ironic part of it, too, is that a lot of the folks, like the people who have studied the people who went to January 6th, for example, a disproportionate number of them were actually middle and upper middle class. Many of them were business, small business owners. Yeah. So it's it's not like uh, this movement that was Trump's movement was a kind of genuinely working class kind of movement. In many ways, yeah. it was a kind of petty bourgeois uh, kind of segment of, of the population um, who weren't the most poor, the most economically desperate, um, who are buying into this. And so this is why, you know, for folks who have emphasized the role of kind of Christian nationalism around like kind of a, a, a sense of religious identity, uh, that that work I think is important, and also the role of kind of racial resentments, um, very rarely expressly articulated, but oftentimes very deeply felt. Um, but, but those aspects of the kind of Trumpian MAGA movement um, are important, as well as then the factor of sexuality, right, and the sort of anxieties around sexuality. So, um, you know, so, so that to me is the, that, those are the social forces and the social dynamics that are kind of create people who are receptive to this kind of messaging. And I think it's really important for Democrats and others who aren't Republicans to really uh, speak um, about those issues in an honest and you know, kind of straightforward way and give people uh, a path to imagining what it looks like to speak about what it means to live in a diverse multiracial democracy, which is what the United States is. Um, yeah. you know, the, the Republicans are offering one way, which is to be resentful and hateful about it. Um, but I think we also need models of what it looks like to kind of value it uh, and celebrate well, it so, and understand the, the benefits of it. Yeah, that brings me to a slightly different question, but in the same field. I recently taught a course on American democracy at DePaul University, and I found in the middle I had to uh, make some changes because the students were just getting so uncomfortable um, with as they as they as they dug into like the, the actions of state governments around the country lately. Um, it, it seems like this vision of a multiracial America is just obvious to young people, and it was to my students. And I, I want to ask you about your your students at Willamette and how you how you can teach about the challenges that we face without dispiriting them. Right. Yeah, uh, boy, that, that's hard. I mean, I mean, one thing 
that I often talk about is that you know, these issues have never been a matter of consensus. They've always been a matter of debate and, and contestation. So that uh, you, you mentioned that I've been in the archive recently. So uh, I was uh, reading in Mark Hatfield's papers, who was governor of Oregon from 1958 to 66, who was a real advocate for civil rights um, as a Republican. And in his letters, because he was such an outspoken advocate for civil rights, he got a lot of letters from people who were not pleased about this. Uh, so is like your friend Walter Huss. <laughs> well, yes, including Walter Huss, right? But many other people as well, not just him. Uh, so his incoming correspondence is filled with people who are really mad at him, for example, when he speaks with Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in Portland in November of 1961. But I also fantasize that there are a good number of letters in there from people, white people in Oregon, uh, thanking Mark Hatfield for the kind of brave stance that he's taking on behalf of civil rights in the early 1960s. And one of those letters, I wrote about this in a Substack post, um, just really moved me sitting there in the archive. And it was from a janitor uh, named Ezra Baker, who lived in Eugene, who was a janitor at a local public school, man in his 50s, uh, he self-identified as a Christian who came from Oklahoma and a white man. And when I first saw that, I was like, oh, geez, okay, I think I know what this letter is going to be. But I was completely wrong. Um, what it turns into is, is this, and the handwriting and the spelling suggests that he probably didn't have more than an eighth-grade education. Um, this this really powerful, uh, eloquent uh, account of why America, in order to be the nation that it claims to be, needs to provide equal justice to all Americans. Um, and he says, you know, we need to cut out this foolishness uh, and just cut the cake of justice and give it to everybody equally the same. And he said, and I want to say that you know, on behalf of my, you know, um, black Americans and myself, uh, give us liberty or give us death. Uh, and his use of the word us there, I think is really moving and important. But he's basically saying that for America to be the nation that it can be, uh, I as a white janitor in Eugene, like I'm upset and I care that my black neighbors are living terrible, economically deprived lives because of racism. And so we need to do something about that as Americans. And I'm invested in this. And Mark Hatfield, I'm glad that you're invested in it too, is why he wrote that, that letter. Um, so, you know, That's there's beautiful. plenty of people, you know, I mean, it, and, you know, so some people would call him a race traitor. I wonder if he has relatives still there, you know, if he has kids. It'd be fun to, I tried. To, yeah, yeah I, I tried. <laughs> I did my best on Ancestry.com, but I've not been able to track him down. Huh. Uh, wow. But anyway, but yeah, no, so it's, you know, and he's not alone. I mean, he's just one example of a, a large number of folks. And obviously, you know, the, the civil rights movement was pushed forward by the activism and, and work of, of black Americans yep. you know, most prominently. And they're the ones who like suffered the greatest kind of blowback and pain and threats of violence and terror because of it. Um, so, you know, writing a private letter to Mark Hatfield didn't cost as a debate or anything. Um, but it, it, what he what he was announcing was that, like, look, I'm ready for this. I am prepared to, like, do what I can uh, to help further this important cause of making America into a truly kind of multiracial democracy that is equal for all. Um, 
And so, you know, the, the, this idea, and, and this is one thing the right often does, is they invert the power dynamics. So they make it seem as if black Americans are in these positions of incredible power and they basically control everything in America. Likewise, you know, you would think that like Dylan Mulvaney and trans people like control America today and have tremendous amounts of power and privilege. Um, and so, so what, what they do is they invert those historical power dynamics in order to convince people who are in positions of historical power that no, actually you are the victim, that there's a vast conspiracy, world corporations or whatever it is, that is out to get you that doesn't have your interests at heart um, and that is trying to elevate other people who are different from you over you so that they can, you know, wield power and dominate you and control you. This is, you know, Trump's message. If they can do it to me, they can do it. You're, they're coming after you next. Um, which is, of course, idiotic and <laughs> ludicrous, but it's a really powerful motive of messaging. And so what Ezra Baker is doing in that letter I just believe that, you know, white and black Americans are equal. Like, so sue me, you know? Like, is, that, is that a communistic thing to believe? Um, I, I just love that story. It's a great story, um, but it's also the story we're going to have to end on because we've run out of time. I can't right. believe it. I have I have a whole list of other <laughs> topics I want to talk to you about, but we're just going to have to do this again, Seth. That sounds great. That sounds great. I'm happy to do it any time. Thank you so much, and thanks for your work. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you bet. You bet. Uh, you guys, you can day. find him at Rightlandia on Substack. All right, um, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, uh, my friend Joe Weinbanks is joining us. Stay tuned. <laughs> 